1: Diagnosed on the autism spectrum as an adult, Becca is an active autism and neurodiversity advocate, consultant, public speaker, and author. She offers a three-unit personal development course for autistic adults called Self-Defined Living, A Path to a Quality Autistic Life. Becca also posts weekly live streams on her YouTube channel to encourage others to share both their challenges and what they're grateful for. In today's conversation, we discuss Becca's emotional roller coaster of finding out about her autism, growing up misdiagnosed and heavily medicated, unmasking and prioritizing self-care, the evolutionary benefit of difference, what society can do to make life easier for autistic people, building on autistic strengths, why she decided to develop her course, how to get out of autistic inertia, and advice for newly diagnosed autistic adults. In this episode, discover what's possible when you live a life you don't need a vacation from. To learn more about Becca and her work, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now, I present you, Becca Laurie Hector. Hi, Becca. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me.
0: I appreciate it.
1: Could you please briefly introduce yourself? Absolutely. Um, My name is Becca
0: Laurie Hector. I am an autism and neurodiversity consultant, as well as an autistic person myself. I am also a mentor, a speaker, an author, an advocate. I do all of that stuff.
1: Great. Yeah. And we'll talk about all of your work later on in the conversation. So first I wanted to start off by talking about what it was like for you to receive your diagnosis as an adult.
0: Um, It was really life-changing for me. It essentially saved my life. Up until my, the last three years leading up to my diagnosis, I was homebound and I was um, really just suicidal and really not well. And I had isolated myself entirely. I had no technology that I was using. Um, it was just me, my bedroom and my TV for three years. And so when my diagnosis came about, it really gave me hope that things could be different and that really fully impacted my life. And so, yeah, it saved my life, essentially.
1: What prompted you to seek out the diagnosis?
0: Well, I was, as I said, I was homebound for three years. And so during that time, I'd always kind of had migraines my whole life and been treated for them. During that time, migraines started to change and I had um, different auras coming along with them. So I was having a smell that nobody else could smell. And I was really concerned about it, and it was really annoying, and I couldn't seem to understand it. And of course, I didn't want to go to the doctor. So what I did was I got on the internet, and I did some researching on WebMD, and then I went to Wikipedia. And um, during those searches, I came across a bunch of scary stuff like olfactory tumors and olfactory hallucinations and tumors and things like that. And then um, during that search, I found sensory processing disorder. And when I read that, I was like, oh, hey this is something that I've talked about my whole life. You know, When I say that the lights are too bright, that they hurt my eyes and it's painful. And people are like, no, it's not. That's crazy. And so um, I'd always felt that. So when I read about sensory processing disorder, it very much felt to me like, I was like, oh, well, this is a thing too. Side note to the headaches, like interesting. And then at the bottom, there was Asperger's syndrome. I'd never heard of Asperger's syndrome. It's what we used to call one portion of the autism community. We no longer use that diagnosis. We're now all under the autism label, which makes a lot more sense. So I hadn't heard it at all. And I grew up in the 80s, a time when autism meant a very specific thing to us. And so no one was really looking at me and, and autism just wasn't, it didn't match me, right? It was at least what we knew about it then. And so reading about Asperger's syndrome Wikipedia was like reading my biography. It was shocking. It was craziness. And I was like, this is this absurd. What I ended up doing was sending a link to my mom of the entry in Wikipedia and not said anything. And so when she finally read it, she came into my room and she's like, oh my God, this is the thing. This is the thing that like we've been struggling with your whole life. And where do you want to go and take care of it? Her response to it was very much the same as mine. And then we went, diagnosis.
1: Yeah. So- You and your mom had been wondering what was different about you your whole life. What was your childhood like?
0: If you don't know what's going on and you don't have other siblings, you don't have other people to compare it to, you just think that's the way life is, right? So there wasn't an awareness about my difference until the kids around me started to point out my difference. So at about eight years old, I started to be aware that I was different from the other kids and that I had to do something about it. Before that, I was happy to parallel play. I was, you know, I just went about my life. I didn't care if other kids were there or not. And it didn't affect me. You know, I was happy with how it was. And it wasn't until we get to that developmental stage where you become aware of your peers that I started to realize it was different. And with that came a lot of trauma and there was a lot of struggle in school, I had a very uneven profile. I know now I have dyscalculia, but at the time it wasn't seen as a learning disorder in me. It was seen as me being lazy in math and being manipulative in math and stubborn because I was hyperlexic and hyperverbal and really exceeding in anything that was word-based. And so There was a lot of that and a lot of misdiagnosis in my childhood. School phobia, social phobia, um, bipolar disorder, manic depression, um, borderline. I've also gotten schizophrenia. And with all of those things came medications, right? Um, And none of them, of course, worked because I didn't have any of those things. And so it was a very cyclical situation for me most of my childhood. And I developed really poor self-esteem by the end of high school, and I had Real struggles with authority figures and trusting authority figures. And so I was sort of a bad kid. And so, yeah, by the time I graduated high school, I was pretty well convinced I was stupid and sort of just taking up space. And that was sort of where I was at. And my childhood was
1: messy. Hmm. How old were you when you got the diagnosis?
0: 36.
1: 36. Okay. So I guess looking back and now knowing as an adult about your autism, if you could go back and pick an age that you think you would have liked to have known, what would that be?
0: From the time I could comprehend that I had it, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, instead that word autism in my life meant something different to me. You know, I grew up in the eighties. We sent kids that had autism and other differences to special schools on special buses. We didn't associate with them. We didn't talk to them. We didn't even really treat them as people. And so the idea that, I fit into a category with people that we did that to was very odd for me, right? It was like a really hard thing to sort of understand. But I think if I had understood at a much younger age, and it was normalized in my house, and I, you know, like, just it was just normalized, right? It's like, yes, you have blue eyes, and, you know, brown hair and autism, you know, and if it was Mm -hmm. like that, and it was just like, yeah, you know, I love cats, I have autism, If it was just a part of a list of things about me, right? And it was normalized from a very young age, it wouldn't have been something that necessarily felt like um, a brick wall in front of me all the time, right?
1: Um, so. Yeah. Yeah. And I bring this up also because uh, I've talked to some parents who were not sure of what age to disclose the diagnosis to their kids. Like, you know, some kids are receiving therapy, like they have people work with them, even at home, but they're not really sure why. Right. And so I understand that it's a sensitive decision for parents because maybe they want to protect their kids from something, kind of like the stigma that you're talking about. But, you know, I was always trying to encourage parents that I worked with to educate their kids just so that they would understand that there's nothing wrong with them, like there's not a problem, Mm -hmm. like they're not bad.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, for parents that struggle with that, you have to remember that that's your baggage. Your kid is a blank slate. Your kid does not come with any opinions about autism. So whatever you know, your kid thinks about autism is based on the information you have shared or not shared with your child solely. So if you're not cool with the word autism, better get that figured out before you worry about telling your child that they have autism. Um, Then we also have to remember that children are children and they don't understand necessarily big words at a certain age, right? So we can't give them the medical manual definition of autism at two years old, four years old, six years old, right? We don't need to use necessarily autism diagnosis when we're talking to them about that their brain is different and that they have different, they may have different sensory needs or they may, right. That's really the reason for the diagnosis is to understand the impact in your life. And so really it's not so much the word autism, but what it imparts on the decisions that your child will be able to make about themselves. And the longer we have to learn that, and the more practice we get at that, the better we get, right. So if you're just kind of normalized to the, to the idea that, you know, I have and I have autism and I'm a girl and this is you know, like these are the things about me, right? And if that's how you grow up feeling about it, then you won't have the shame and guilt and stigma. When we don't share with their child our child a diagnosis, what we're doing is perpetuating the very stigma that we're trying to get rid of, right? So Right. really it's it's up to the parents to break the cycle. Right? Their kids don't have to feel bad about their autism.
1: Yeah. As you said, you received a lot of medication that wasn't really targeting what was wrong. So what support do you think would have been most beneficial to you growing up?
0: I think the thing that I struggled with the most as a child was sensory environment. For me, that's a really, really big challenge. And it became a Challenge twice as large because people wouldn't validate my experiences. So instead of being able to say, listen, I know that sunglasses inside is weird, but when I do it, I can hear you, I can stay here, I don't get a headache, I don't want to leave, I don't start having, you know, discomfort, all of those things, but that's not what happened. Right. That's not how I was taught to take care of myself. In fact, what I was taught to do was not take care of myself. I was taught to hide all that discomfort and pretend it wasn't there and just mosey on with my life. And so I had no skill sets around how to even take care of those things. I had no vocabulary about how to take care of those things. And I had nobody around me that believed me. So, you know, it was sort of like that kind of situation. And what that does over time is really. It adds to that low self-esteem because you can't even trust yourself. You can't even trust your own reality and your own experiences. So it can be really damaging. And for me, that's the piece that was really the beginning for me of all of my challenges because I didn't understand I was having sensory challenges and nobody around me understood I was having sensory challenges. And being in that much discomfort, that many hours of every day makes you an unhappy person. I mean, you don't want to go to school. You don't want to get up in the morning. You have a headache all the time. You you know what I mean? I wasn't a nice person. And that then became a big problem. But if we had stopped and thought about the why I was feeling so angry and annoyed and all of those things and understood it was from this discomfort of sensory, I could have not had any of those things. And it would have also given me the skill set of advocacy, really self-advocacy, right? Of saying, I know you don't need sunglasses in here, but I do, right? I didn't have that skill set. Because I was really taught, oh, I need sunglasses in here. Okay, um, I'll take for that bathroom breaks or something. No one
1: should know. Mm. Yeah. So when you found out about your autism with the validation and everything, was it like an overnight acceptance or was that a process also?
0: It was definitely a process. I think for all of us that get a late-in-life diagnosis – that first year is incredibly difficult. It's, it's painful in a lot of different ways, but it's also exciting in a lot of different ways. And so it's an emotional roller coaster of a year for, for a lot of us. Um, you know, you're getting a new piece of your identity and you have to reform how you think of yourself and how you fit into the world and a whole lot of things. I mean, it's just, it's really difficult to explain how like you can go through your life. Right? I mean, I lived almost four decades on the planet before I knew about this piece of myself. And so I had to digest that and then I had to figure out where it fit in my life as a 36-year-old woman, but also, you know, as an adult and what was this going to mean and all of these things. And um, then there was a lot of look back, right? A lot of looking back at little me and feeling sad that she didn't get the help that she needed, feeling sad that, you know, she felt really victimized and traumatized and um, really just, you know, angry that the adults around me didn't help more or better or something. And we all kind of go through that. We all go through that that kind of anger stuff. And then we also kind of look through our lives trying to find the autism everywhere, right? Like where was it this whole time that nobody caught it or was it there? You know, like just looking for um, more of that validation and really it's a need to understand ourselves, right? It's like, oh my God, I was living my whole life thinking that I had one eye and somebody just took a patch off my eye and now I have two eyes. And it's like, an insane thing and so it takes a whole lot in that first year and it's a really personal journey no one can do it but you and it's just a real emotional roller coaster so that that first year is tough after that it gets a lot easier
1: Hmm. so how does your autism affect your life today like your everyday life
0: well it affects my everyday life all day long because i've made my self-care a priority right so up until this point in my life i really didn't take care of my own needs, because I was literally told almost word for word, don't take care of those things, take care of everyone else around you and their comfort, right? So I had spent 36 years on the planet taking care of everyone else's comfort, even the invisible comfort stuff, right? Like all the social comfort right? and doing all of that work while being uncomfortable myself all the time. And with the diagnosis, my experiences got validated. Your self-esteem raises and you understand that you have value as a human being and that your needs as a human being are just as important as anybody else's. And so what I started, what I realized was that I'm only going to be the priority in my life, right? We're each the pri- priority in our own lives and then everyone else in our lives comes after that. And it's why people that are people pleasers and givers all the time feel like they get stepped on because the other part, you're taking care of these other people and no one's turning around and taking care of you. So the only way to really do that is to make yourself a priority. And that's what I do now. So all of the decisions that I make about how much I schedule in my workday, the kind of work that I take, what I do with my weekends and free time, what I'm going to eat, what I'm going to not eat, everything almost, how often I shower, all kinds of other things. Um, But I'm with autism all the time. Like I don't get to take it off at any point. I don't get to sleep without my autism. I dream with my autism. I do everything with my autism. And that means that every decision that I'm making, autism has to be a part of that decision. Do I want to do this thing? Well, yes, in theory, but let me think through and see think about what it's really going to be like for me to be there. Will I have the things I need? What do I need to bring? And then decide, do I want to do this thing? Right. And so those are things I was never able to consider before. I was never understood that I could take care of those things and I never made my comfort a priority before that. So now it's in every decision.
1: Yeah. So, you know, you're talking about pleasing other people and This comes up a lot with autistic people and masking, right? Like hiding autistic traits in order to make other people feel comfortable. Could you talk a little bit about ways that you were masking, specifically in social situations?
0: Sure. So um, what's interesting about masking is we talk about it all the time in relation to autism. But it's actually a human coping skill. All humans actually do it. It's just that autistics get really, really good at it. And we'd have to do it a whole lot more than anybody else. So what I want people to think about is not so much autistic masking, but masking in general, right? So imagine you're going to a job interview. You have this big job interview. It's a job you really want. You've learned a lot of things about the company because you need to make sure that you know what you're talking about and sound smart. You want to make sure that you look good, right? And you want to make sure that you present well and all of these things so that they really want to like you. They want, you want them to like you, so they hire you, right? That's essentially the life of an autistic person every day, all day long. Is we do, it's just an interview. All every day is an interview all day long. And that's the masking. When you go into an interview, you're not you like you are if you are sitting on your couch eating popcorn and watching Real Housewives, right? There's a different version of you that goes to that interview. Mm-hmm. There's a mask. Uh, And it's what you're saying that thinks about your body language, right? And if you think about how much work it is, if it was a really high-pressure interview that meant a lot to you, and you think about how much work and how exhausted you would be after that interview, right? You would have been anxious the night before. You would have been thinking about what to wear. You would have gotten to get there on time, right? Have I eaten well? Was there anything in my teeth? Like everything, right? You're worrying about all those things. Then the interview's over and you're back in your car on your way home and deflate. I don't have to do that anymore. Take this off, take that off, put on the music real loud, right? And go be yourself. And essentially that's what autistics do all day long. All because the people that we're meeting with in light, right, that we're having interactions with are not comfortable with our difference. And so we have to hide our difference in order to get things done the way that we need to get them done in order to survive as a human being. Because that's the way the world is right now. We are in a world, we live in a world that's obsessed with sameness. It's just obsessed with everyone being as sane as possible, and that's the most opposite thought of the human condition. Then I can—it's like an oxymoron to ask humans to be sane, right? Ridiculous, and yet that's the way we live. And so, when we want to get things done, when I as an adult want to get things done, well, I don't want to walk into the bank, for example with five fidget toys and not showered and in my pajamas because they're the most comfortable and don't give me sensory issues, right? I walk into the bank like that, right? And no one's taking me seriously. So they're gonna ask me a lot more questions and they're gonna wanna see my ID and they're gonna wanna take and they're gonna ask and they're gonna need much more from me to prove that I'm a responsible person, right? And that I am who I say I am and that they should give me the money and that I've not stolen someone's identity, right? That's the bank experience. Now, if I go in and I'm clean and and I'm well-dressed and um, well-spoken and I come in knowing what it is that I need and I, you know, have everything ready, well, I get a different response from the teller at the bank, right? I get what I want done. I don't get asked a lot of questions. I'm in and I'm out. And that's because I'm asking. I'm not being who I am. I'm being who they need me to be in order for them to give me what I need, right? And As an autistic person, there are benefits to that, right? It takes a whole lot less energy and time to go into the bank and do the masking scenario than it does to be your at-home self trying to go to the bank and take out $500. So it's a spoon saver, and it becomes a really important coping mechanism because we are trying so hard to just survive. We just want everyone to leave us alone. I just want to appear on the outside like everything is fine and I'm normal, so everyone will leave me alone to do all my weirdness by myself. Because if I don't get to do any of my weirdness, I can't. I will not survive. So we white knuckle ourselves through life, and we push through all of these awful scenarios for that little tiny bit of comfort for ourselves.
1: Mm. And it's
0: ask more of the world than that.
1: Yeah, and so, I mean, as you're saying that it's like a natural human condition, and people do it all the time, but autistic people need to do it more. What's that balance? And I'm sure it's different for everyone, right? But like. If it's a coping mechanism, but it's causing harm, where do you draw the line?
0: I don't know. We have to ask society that, right? I mean, it's, it is essentially self-harm, right? Mm-hmm. Eventually, mm-hmm. it causes burnout and shutdown. And we know that, right? It's not, it's, you know, we don't have the research yet. But anecdotally, we know. If you are in that survival mode, that white knuckle masking through life thing, you will crash and burn at some point. And that's often when people get their late diagnosis is when that happens. So a lot of people mask all the time because they don't know any other way to get through it. Some people become alcoholics and drug addicts because they don't know how else to do it. It's exhausting. They turn to other versions of self-harm. And so what we're really saying overall is that your authentic self is unacceptable. That's what masking is about. It's that the world is saying your authentic autistic self is unacceptable. Don't you dare show it out in the world. Hmm. What we're doing then is perpetuating the self-harm, right? Whereas if we say your difference is just fine, whatever, and go about our lives and let people be themselves, then all of these people that are suffering don't need to mask all the time. And then we're not creating Mm -hmm. trauma. We're not creating exhaustion. We're not, Mm -hmm. right? And so it's a cycle that has to end and it has to end with the autistics themselves demanding better,
1: Mm -hmm. right? Demanding Mm -hmm. better
0: from the world. Like that's not okay.
1: Yeah. So what do you think society, what do you think the world can do better to make life easier for autistic people?
0: I think the key to that is understanding perspective, it's like perspective taking to me. We want to think of ourselves as kind, right? We want to think humans, are kind, right? That's our hope. So if we take the idea that all we want to do is be kind and open that idea of kindness up to Making sure we're doing things to accommodate people that are not like ourselves. So it's opening up your mind a little bit to not everyone's like you. And somebody may have needs that are very different from yours and may seem odd to you. And yet their needs are just as important as yours. It's like removing that judgment out of kindness we can displace the judgment about the behaviors, right, or the actions or the word choices or whatever, or our tone of voice or our facial expression and all of the other things that we get criticized for, if you take those things away and you hear the words that are coming out of our mouths, right, we're just human beings. And so what it has to be is stop judging that thing. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really interesting thing. And I, I'm going to throw this out there because somebody's going to have to run with it at some point and it's not going to be me too tired. (laughs) But um, there's something called the uncanny valley effect. And that is, has been studied a lot. And it's the idea that human beings are really happy to accept like robots and AI type things in their life, unless it gets so close to being human, that it's barely, you can barely differentiate between the robot and the human, right? The closer that is to being, the more we get freaked out by it. So when autistic people come into a room, we're so close to being human, right? We're so close to being normal. We're so almost that it freaks everybody out because here we are wearing a human packaging, but our behavior is not the behavior people are necessarily expecting, or we don't talk about the things they're expecting us to talk about or the way they expect us to talk about it. And it's that slight difference that seems to really repel people. It really puts people off and we need to deal with that. Why? What is it about people being different that is so undermining to general society, right? It's, it's certainly the way that nature put us together. So why are we fighting that so much? What is that about? And that's like all difference, right? We're not just talking about autism. It's not just a problem that autistics deal with. Mm-hmm. I do diversity and inclusion panels all the time. And I say the same things that the Black people on the panel say, that the Asian people on the panel say, that the gay people on the panel say, right? We all just want to be included. We want our supermarkets to look like us. We want, right? You know, and all of those things and that they mask too. They mask for the comfort of others. And that's really interesting. Why are we all masking for each other? What is that about? Why are we all so concerned about everyone else's comfort level and so unconcerned about our own?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is really fascinating. I mean, you can kind of go back to evolutionary times and think that people who are different or people who are not fitting in might be undependable for some reason, like because you can't predict what they're going to do. And for whatever reason, that's causing like a defense against difference.
0: Right. It's, it is because it's, in, it's um, the whole idea is survival, right? The, the whole idea behind the biology is survival of the fittest, right? And so the idea is that if somebody is not working to the benefit of the whole team, right? That maybe, right? And especially animals do it. They do that with injured animals and things like that when we think about nature as a whole, right? But at the same time, evolution isn't about judgment. It's all about how like, that person feels threatened and it's all about their response to the difference. It's still about the response to the difference. But if we look at evolution, those differences occur for a reason. There's a reason that they develop and there's a reason that those differences perpetuate. The differences that aren't successful and don't help disappear, right? And Mm -hmm. the ones that are successful continue on. And when we look at when we see something say jump in an evolutionary way, I always think about the giraffe. I think this is the best example I can think of. Giraffes didn't always have long necks, they used to have, look like horses, they used to have short necks. But because, out of the need to feed, right, and there were so many people, that, so many animals that were eating greenery. They started to develop a longer neck. And as they developed a longer neck, they could eat more leaves that no one else could reach and they had more food. So they uh, evolution worked to breed them with longer necks, right? Because the ones that had longer necks survived better because they had more food. And so here was a difference. Maybe at first all the other giraffes were like, dude, you have a long ass neck. But like all of a sudden, that's, you know, there's this big fat giraffe with a long neck, right? And so we have to remember that evolution works like that too. But the human response to difference for some reason is fear, right? right. And so mm-hmm. instead of, you know, and we're hopefully we have intellectually evolved in a way that we can think past that, right? And we can see that differences like this and and when we make advancements, right, we're going forward in our, in our growth rather than backward. And I think we as a species let fear keep us from doing things.
1: Yeah. And I don't know if Temple Grandin was the first one who said this, but she definitely talked about the need for all kinds of minds in the world and how each autistic person has some kind of strength that they can contribute to society. What are your strengths as an autistic person?
0: Well, there are a couple of strengths that I don't have to work on that just kind of came with the package, right? And that I'm very grateful for. For example, the ability to publicly speak and the ability to just um, have a large vocabulary, I 've always been a wordy person, right The ability to write has always been something that comes easily to me, and it 's the way I express myself best is using words right and so that's always a strength area for me, so anything around that reading, writing, editing all of those things are, are my strengths, and I would say some other strengths that have come with a lifetime of autism are really just I have a really big attention to detail. But I have learned to understand that my brain seeks patterns and sees patterns, and I've learned to pay attention to them. I've learned how to use the patterns that I see in a way that's helpful to me. For example, patterns in people's behaviors help me a lot through social situations and a lot in anticipating social situations because I sort of memorize people's cycles and behaviors and patterns and things and responses to stuff not I, because I'm trying, but it just happens. And then now I've learned to sort of leverage that as a skill set. Mm-hmm. And I also have a crazy memory for details, which makes me an excellent networker. I really um, will remember something that you've told me about yourself and five years down the line, have a conversation with someone else and I'll be like, oh my God, talk to Rachel, hold on. <laughs> I will put you guys in touch with each other, you know? And that's just another one of those things. But we're not taught to treat those as strengths, right? No one would say to me, oh, you see patterns, let's make a strength out of that. No one would see them as that. And so it took me a while to develop the ability to see them as strengths in myself, as the things that really have helped me to survive.
1: Just makes me think that, you know, the autistic community has so many untapped strengths that people try to either normalize or, you know, kind of hide and a Like if you think about kids who are like the typical thing of lining up trains, right? Like that's the stereotypical autistic boy, right? And if they like doing that, how can we use that as a strength to build on other skills and help them to live a fulfilling life?
0: Right. Well, think about it, right? So I'm somebody, you know, who has always loved animals and I've always particularly loved cats. And That's just been my special interest for a really long time. I also happen to be really good with words and writing and explaining things, right? So as I grew up and I was sort of trying to understand all of these things about myself, what I started to want to do was really work with animals, right? I was like, well, what can I do, right? And I knew I struggled in math, so I really felt like veterinary medicine was out of my wheelhouse. Like I just, it would be too much math for me and I didn't understand I had a learning disability and all of those things, which now... I probably could have been a vet. Um, but I went on, I ended up being a vet tech and I was really good at it because I understood the medical lingo and I could then turn around and explain it to the clients, like I could understand the doctor and I could translate him into, you know, regular language for the people who were in the room with me, right? And I could see patterns in the animals' behaviors and begin to do diagnoses and things like that. And then I as I was doing all of that, which I all I love all of that stuff very much, but what I realized I really loved was cat behavior. And if you think about someone like Jackson Galaxy, right? A lot of people know him. He's on Animal Planet. He does, uh, he's the cat whisperer and he does all of these things, right? Um, And he's made a career and a life out of his love for cats and understanding their behavior. That would have been a perfect career move for me, right? I could have just done that for myself if somebody along the way had said, wait, you like this and you're good at this. And I was always... Instead of you, you like this and you're good at this. Why don't you like this and why are you bad at this? Was what I right. So I was getting all of that information instead. Hmm. Um, and what that meant was that I was never really clear that I was good at anything. And we think about that train example. Here's a kid who loves lining up trains. What does he love about it? Is it that trains are supposed to be in a line and so he lines them up right because that's how they go. So just is it the lining of it that he likes? Is it the train itself? Is it how trains work? Is it the parts and memorizing the parts and component? What is it about the lining up the trains, right? Because if if it's about lining things up, you'll see that in other places. If it's about the trains themselves, you'll see that interest somewhere else, not just in the lining up. And so about figuring out what that is, right? Because maybe that kid's going to be, maybe he will be a conductor, but maybe he'll be a ticket taker at a booth at the, the railroad station. Maybe he will build the railroad ties. Maybe he will become an engineer and work on designing better trains, right? There are all kinds of potential things that can come out of an interest and liking for of trains and then a skill set that comes with it. Mm. What we haven't been doing all of this time is leveraging the special interests and leveraging the strengths. We've been too preoccupied with the deficits.
1: Right, right, yeah. Okay, Becca, I want to... Switch topics and get into the course that you offer. Because you are a certified autism and cognitive specialist, and your course is called Self Defined Living a Path to a Quality Autistic Life. So, what does successfully living a self defined life mean to you? Well, for me,
0: it means living a life that feels like your own. A lot of autistic people, especially without a diagnosis, tend to live our lives and supposed to. So we try to live our life the way people tell us it's supposed to look. And again, it's that place of keeping everyone else comfortable around you and not worrying about your own comfort. So it doesn't matter if I like the way my life is, if it's satisfactory to everyone else and they're comfortable with it, then they'll leave me alone. It's that whole idea, right? And what I do is flip it on its head. No. Your life should look like you love it. Like you should be able to create a life that you don't want a vacation from. Because that's all that I wanted my whole life was not to be you know, working for the weekends, not to be chasing happiness or those moments off. I wanted to wake up every day and like where I wake up instead of waking up every day and hating where I was. And so I took control of all of that. And I did that through a lot of personal development stuff. And unfortunately, personal development, which used to be called self-help, is all written for the neurotypical brain by neurotypical brains. So I had to do a lot lot more reading, I guess, than what a lot of people do. But I'm also, as an autistic person, an info seeker. So once I got started sort of on this personal development thing, I just was like, read, 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 read. And so I started reading a whole bunch of things. And I read all of the real popular books, like The Secret and The Four Agreements and all of those kind of books. And what I noticed was that these people who many, many people were following and having success with were repeating a lot of the same things, right? I could see the pattern. I could just see it in all of their stuff, right? So I was like, oh, you know, each of them says like seven things and two of them are all different, but five of them, they all repeat. So it must be those five things that must be really important. And so I would hang on to those things and start working with them. And over time of working on myself about these things and building a life that moved me from New York City to the Colorado Rockies for my sensory issues, in doing that, I learned a lot about what does and what doesn't work and what we need as autistics versus what we don't need. So we don't like a lot of fluff around our stuff. We don't like a lot of gray material. We just want, like people say, meat and potatoes. We don't even want the meat and potatoes. We just want the meat. No potatoes. Thank you. And so I needed just those things. That's what I was, I was combing through all of this stuff for these little nuggets, right? And so when the time I was done, I was like, I had notebooks and I had experiences and all of these things to share. And I wanted to put together all the things that I found out that worked in a very meat style course for the autistic brain, because I really believe in a place where we have no services and supports for adult autistics that we must create our own. And so I will, you know, I create this in a void and say, somebody else creates something else because we have nothing right now. So did I create the best thing in the world? No. Have I created something that is something in a void of nothing? Yes. Right. And so at least it's something for what happens after your diagnosis. I got my diagnosis. All the books are everybody's memoirs up until their diagnosis. Everything talks about everything until diagnosis, but there was no to do or how to do manual About after diagnosis, Mm -hmm. and that's Mm -hmm. that's what I created for somebody else. So the course is all about that. It's about kind of understanding in unit one what are the things that got you to where you are, what are the troublesome areas that we struggle with, and that kind of thing, and why. Unit two is all of those skill sets that you need to create that life you don't need a vacation from, and then unit three is the management tools to keep that life once you've created it. The whole goal is to go from that white knuckle survival place to a thriving place where you don't feel like that every day. And it takes time and effort. And for everybody, it's a different area they need to start, right? Everyone has a place in their life they're most uncomfortable. And it's not all the same, but the skill sets are transferable. So what I'm teaching can work in all the areas of their life. And so I hope that people are finding it helpful. I know a lot of people who have reached out um, and shared with me that they are. But of course, I, I do work into a giant void. And so I don't hear back from everybody. <laughs>
1: Could you talk about how autistic inertia affects people's lives and why your course would be beneficial to that?
0: Um, So autistic inertia is something that we talk about. I think of it as a pre-syndrome to a shutdown or even more so a burnout. And so what autistic inertia is, is that we get stuck a lot. We can get stuck for any number of reasons, Sometimes it's a big disappointment in our lives. Something doesn't go the way we wanted it to go, that kind of thing. The other thing, could, you know, it could be exhaustion. It could be a whole bunch of different things. But what inertia looks like is an autistic person on the couch with no motivation, right? That's what it looks like to the outside world. What it feels like inside is I'm stuck. I don't know how to get unstuck. So I'm just going to keep sinking into stuck because I I don't see an out. I don't know how to get out of it. And so what we end up seeing is people that go from the couch to the bedroom and the basement, and then they don't want to leave the house. And inertia turns into this big burnout phase, right? Because we never get out of inertia. So the things that I try to teach in my course are all about catching things like that early, learning your triggers. What are the things that trigger you? Are you someone that really suffers when you have a disappointment, right? Maybe you put 150% into everything you do. And so it hurts, right? But you need to learn that about yourself. We all need to understand what our triggers and traps are as human beings. And when you begin to understand that, and you begin to learn how your body tells you that things are not okay, right? So for example, I don't feel hunger. That's something I struggle with a lot. It's not actually feeling hungry. And if I'm busy, I won't eat because I don't feel it, right? I don't have a really good interoception connection between my brain and my hunger system. And so what I had to do, I used to set alarms. Now I have a dog and my dog reminds me to eat because I have to feed him and he doesn't like to not eat. But it's all about kind of developing a skill set around that. Like, what does hunger feel like then to me, right? What are some of the other signs I could be looking for? Well, let me tell you, you've seen those Snickers commercials about hangry people. <laughs> I am a hungry person. And when I feel like I'm impatient, I don't have the patience for people. And I just want to be like, just give me that. I'll do it myself. Well, I have to eat something like that. Mm-hmm. That feeling is what happens when I'm having a low blood sugar. So I don't feel the grumbles and I don't feel the empty tummy, but that's an uh, okay. I know sometimes I get a hunger headache and I, I'll know then, right? But I spent a lifetime just ignoring that stuff because who is going to tell me everyone else is listening for their grumpy tummy that I never had, Right. So you have to learn those things about yourself. You have to figure those things out. And when you can figure those things out, you can stop this stuff before it happens by doing self-care and understanding what you need. So what happens a lot is that folks don't know how to do that and they end up in this inertia place. And the key to getting out of that inertia place is movement. The key to all of it, right? Inertia is that it's a stuckness. And if you want to get unstuck, you have to move. And so for a lot of us, the idea of moving and not knowing what to do What's what's the first thing I should do when I move? I don't even know that. I'm not going to get up. And that's piece of autism that we call executive functioning. It's not knowing the first step, right? And that can keep people stuck. Another thing that can keep people stuck is that overwhelmed feeling of just, it's so big, right? Like I haven't cleaned my house in three months and now I have to clean my whole house. Oh my God, too overwhelming. I'll just sit on the couch. And the next day the house is still dirty and it just builds on itself. So instead, what I say to everybody is defy that with movement. And it doesn't have to be a lot of movement. It doesn't have to be a big thing. And I always tell people to return to basics. If you're feeling the inertia, don't worry about your big responsibilities. I don't want you thinking about those things. What you want to think about is, is your laundry done? Did you eat today? Have you showered in a while? Does your dog need a walk, right? These really basic things that mean you're taking care of yourself. And if you can get up one day and do the laundry, and that's all you do that day, but you did the laundry. So the next day you wake up and you're like, haha, but I did the laundry yesterday. What can I do today? And we build off of that momentum until we're back up to the speed we're used to being at. But the whole key is not to give in to the stuck and just to get up and do something
1: mm. and do something
0: that's good for you, something that brings you joy, anything. Just get yourself up because once you're up and you start reconnecting with the world, the energy picks up again.
1: That's really, I can imagine just a, Game changer for many people and trying to identify like those early signs, right? So that it's easier to not get super stuck when some time has passed already.
0: Right. And so like if you, you know, when I notice that stuff is coming on, if I notice that I'm hangry, well, I don't wait another hour or two to eat. I go and eat, right? And so the more self-aware we become of our own signals, the sooner we can do enough. If anybody knows about the blessings of early intervention, it is the autism community. Right, the earlier you intervene with your struggle and take care of it, the less of a problem it becomes. So, if we're feeling really run down and really burnt out, and you're already like feeling that way inside in a particular day, you best do something about it in the next few days. If you don't, it's going to become a bigger episode. That's going to take longer and going to be more work to get out of. Hmm. Taking that one day off versus needing a week off. Is where we're trying to be at.
1: Yeah. Okay, Becca. So you have your course and you also offer seminars for people to try it out, right?
0: So I do a monthly seminar. It's on a very particular topic. You can either look at it as continuing education for the folks who have taken the course or a way to step in and kind of try out my teaching on a particular topic and see if what I talk about and how I talk about it makes sense to you. And then maybe you'd be interested in taking the whole course. But the point was to just have just talk about a particular topic really in depth for an hour or once a month and the stuff that really impacts your life as an autistic adult alive right now. So I did unraveling masking. I did debunking disclosure, and I just did one in May that was called simplifying self-care. So those are the three topics I've done so far. They are all also up on my website. Everything is up on my website. All the recordings are there. So if you miss the live version of anything, you can buy the recordings and and watch it again.
1: Great. And you also have a YouTube channel, right? Where you post weekly videos about gratitude.
0: I do. So I do um, two live streams a week right now on my YouTube channel. I do one on Tuesday, which is really like mini support group type idea where I talk about the challenges of being an adult autistic alive right now and what I'm going through, how I'm processing it, what I think some of our issues are and where they come from and that kind of thing. And then on Sundays, I do Growing Gratitude, which is my weekly sort of very public way of acknowledging the things I'm grateful for in my life, even when my week is really bad, because that's the stuff that keeps us going. And if we create that positive in our life, it attracts more positive to us, whereas if we're feeling really negative, we just attract negative to us. And so it's a way of making sure that I'm increasing my positivity and sharing the benefits of gratitude with folks and maybe inspiring them to do it for themselves.
1: Yeah. All right, Becca, I'd like to close with one last question. What's one piece of advice you would give to newly diagnosed autistic adults? Be selfish.
0: Take this first year and be selfish. You will not be ready for me to tell you that your behavior is not selfish. So for right now, just be selfish and stay self-focused. Spend a year getting to know yourself through this lens. Learn about your brand of autism. Learn about the areas in your life that are, you're struggling with because of it and get to know your community in that year. Get, come find us on Facebook and all the other social platforms wherever you're comfortable. We're out there, but get to know others like you. That first year is so important to processing your diagnosis and understanding your new identity and figuring out how it all fits into your life. So be kind to yourself during that time and really be aware of the way you're talking to yourself in your head um, and allow yourself some kindness because that is a, definitely an emotional roller coaster of a year.
1: All right. Well, thank you, Becca. We'll put a link to your website in our show notes so people can reach out and find out more about your course.
0: Great. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you. And I want to say thank you also for just being so raw and authentic.
0: Absolutely. It's um, the only way that I can be anymore. I've ditched the mask, so I'm over it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. This conversation with Becca left me very curious about accepting differences from the norm when it comes to human behavior. With more and more self-advocates speaking up about their experiences, society can learn to take other people's perspectives and let them truly be themselves without judgment. Are you a self-advocate willing to share your story and educate others? Are you a professional seeking to hear directly from autistic voices and improve your practice? Are you a family member hoping to support and empower your loved one? Whatever your role related to autism is, You can join our global autism community to connect and collaborate with people all over the world. Sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community.
0: You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at autismknowsnoborders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.